Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast. This is Dr. Marcia and truly grateful to have you joining me today for another amazing episode. Well, here we are 15 years after St. John Paul II's death, and his teachings on the person, sex, and gender are still being studied, examined, and debated. Why is his understanding of the human person so important for us to understand? And why did he dedicate so much of his teachings to these themes? Joining me on the podcast today to tackle these questions and more is Dr. John Grabowski, Ordinary Professor of Moral Theology and Ethics at the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University of America. Dr. Grabowski is an expert in this field, and while we tend to use that term expert too casually, he literally is an expert, having been appointed by Pope Francis to serve as an expert on the 2015 Synod of the Family. So, if Pope Francis thinks that he's an expert, it's good enough for me. Well, needless to say, you're in for a treat today. So in today's episode, we go deep into discussing the purpose of the body and the sexual difference, why we needed to break away from Victorian era stereotypes, why there is a resurrection of the body, and what happens when we reject these truths of our body and our sexuality, how we can find common ground with those who disagree, and how we can attend to individuals who are suffering the pains of these new cultural norms and laxes in sexual ethics. And finally, we end our discussion by talking briefly about the limitations of John Paul II's teachings. As with any conversation about sex and gender, it touches on many aspects of the human experience. So we dabble a little bit into theology, philosophy, neuroscience, spiritual theology, and psychology. Enjoy the ride. And when the show is done, please feel free to continue the conversation with me on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. Well, let's get into this interview with Dr. John Krabowski. Dr. John Grabowski, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great, Mario. Um, thank you for having me. Great to be with you. Wonderful. I'm so so honored to have you on the show, John. And uh, so introduce yourself to the audience. Um, what, what brings you to, to this topic of uh, sex and gender? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> something I've been uh, thinking about working on literally for 35 years. Um, as a grad student uh, in my doctoral program at Marquette, I uh, read a lot of St. John Paul II's teaching and thought he was Pope at the time, um, really captivated by the theology of the body, and actually ended up doing my dissertation on theological anthropology and gender, meaning sexual difference, not in the kind of rarefied sense of that term, um, in Catholic theology as a whole. So certainly John Paul II was part of that, but I looked at feminist thought and kind of the whole range of Catholic thought to, because this subject, I'm, I, I, I had a sense even then, back in the late 80s, early 90s, was hugely important and getting more important. And boy, the last 30 years have just underscored that um, because this is this is the point on which our culture is kind of unraveling in so many ways. Um, and the church has been drawing our attention to that. Yeah. Praise God. Well, that definitely seems prophetic in the sense that you've been in this for, for so long and for sure. Yeah. Even in the late eighties and early nineties, it was present, but it seems even in the last 10 years that this has become like even more divisive of an issue, uh, and where the battle lines are certainly drawn and just so much confusion that, that tends to be uh, emerging out of this. 
I tell my students all the time, this this area, um, sexuality, sexual difference, marriage, this is where the battle for the soul of our age is being fought. Um, so this is where we're called to go as Christians, Amen. right? To, to, be, to be part of this. Amen. Um, take up evangelical weapons in this, in this struggle okay. for the truth. Well, let's get into this let's then. So, so if, if, if we're talking about uh, sex and gender, um, wh- where do you see just in terms of the meeting points um, between what our, our, the church teaches with regards to uh, this beautiful theology of the body, but even uh, a, a grasp of natural law and philosophy versus then kind of the modern notions of sex, sex fluidity I mean, it seems that we tend to talk about these things in polarizing terms, but there has to be some points of convergence, right? I mean, is there is there is there any place where there tends to be there is some overlap uh, between these two kind of uh, systems of thought? Huh. Um, well, I think, unfortunately, I think there's less and less overlap. Okay, fair right? enough. Because. Uh, um, and let me let me explain Please. why I say that, what I mean by that. Um, I, I think the best diagnosis of where we are and where we're going as a culture was given by Pope Benedict um, in December of 2012. His final address to the Roman Curia at Christmas time. He had a little section in that address where he talked about the separation of sex and gender. Um, and how it kind of had its origin in existentialist philosophy, and then it got imported into feminism by Simone de Beauvoir and people like that. Um, so you had the idea that sex, biology, is one thing, and then gender is this whole other thing. And as Pope Benedict said, the original idea was that this is a, a cultural construct, that culture creates your gender, what it masculinity, femininity. Um, But now, Benedict says, more and more, we are adopting the idea that, no, it's a personal construct. Mm. My my culture doesn't create my identity. I create my own identity. Um, Which, and Benedict says, the idea, ultimately what it does is it denies that we have a human nature, that we're creatures of a loving God, because no longer are we male and female made in the image of God, but now we are whatever we want to be in terms of the way I understand my body, my attractions, myself. And this is how we get to 70, 80, 90, 100 plus genders, um, right? Because it's just self-creation. So I think, I think there's, there's a growing divergence between what we know scientifically in terms of the reality of human biology um, and then kind of an understanding of human nature based on that and then furthermore in the light of revelation and where where the culture is kind of going and and at the root of it is the denial of who we are as creatures the denial of our and i really think what benedict does in that diagnosis is take the whole theology of the body and all of that wisdom and concentrate it in reading uh, where the culture is, where the trend of our culture is going. Wow. Uh, Okay. So uh, 
it, the optimist in me was hoping for for some degree of, of <laughs> like convergence, but but, it, I mean, but, but it's not there. But it's true because there there is this fundamental, uh, you know, when we speak about the the philosophical underpinnings of much of our sociological kind of forces, you know, not to speak too heady here, but but things that drive a lot of our actions, there there is a, a difference, um, and. And it is, it comes down to certain questions or are, are we created? Is there purpose? Is there inherent meaning to our bodies, to our, our DNA, to our origins, to our, 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 our constructs of, of, of sex and relationships, or are these things entirely self-deterministic, you know, and, and if we are just as atheists, you know, uh, like Sam Harris, he proposes that, you know, basically we're just conscious matter. I mean, that's all we are. We're just stardust that happened to conglomerate together in this randomly at this point in history that sort of by coincidence developed, you know, self-reflective capacities. Well, I mean, if that's the truth that you believe in, then yeah, I can see where the constructs that you're communicating about, I'm self-deterministic. I determine who I am. I, I make up the rules of my own game. I can see where all that, that plays out. There are inherent limitations in that, of course, you know, and, and if anything, with respect, not, not to make light of the coronavirus situation, but where we find ourselves now in a pandemic is, is honestly quite humbled by the fact that we are not in control uh, with as much of what we thought we were in control with. And this should be one of these moments where we do cause some reflection. We do pause and reflect a little bit more on, on who we are. And I'm, that's a great point. And and to go back to your original question, Mario, I do think, can we, can we find common ground? Sure. We can agree that we have bodies. We can agree that those bodies have um, a, a, a reproductive biology, a sexual, that, that we refer to as sexual difference. The question is how we interpret those realities. Is our body a hindrance or a gift? Is sexual difference a limit? Limitation, or is it a call to communion with others? Right. So we we can we find common ground? Yes. But then when we start to look at the reality that we that and you're right, the coronavirus is a great kind of reminder for us all that our bodies make a difference. Our bodies are and when our bodies are threatened, our life as human beings are threatened because we are an integral whole of body and soul, and we can't just override or overcome or ignore the bodily realities of our existence. Um, and so the threat that a virus like COVID-19 can pose to us. So let, let's bring this down, right? So for the listeners who are just joining us, welcome to the show. Uh, you know, hope you have your thesaurus out and, and ready to engage. <laughs> so like, so if, we get, if we get, let's bring, let's bring this down a couple notches. Okay. So, so to, to the novice who's listening, what 101, okay. Like, what does the church teach about sex and gender, and what is the role then of the body uh, in John Paul II's philosophies, and and then even in Benedict, and of course in in, in Pope Francis here? So just a one on one at a basic level, why sex? What does that mean from it from a church from a church perspective? Well, let's start with body and then work our way to sex Sounds if we great. can. Sounds right. great. So, um. Start, foundational starting point, the body matters, right? 
um, that's a metaphysical pun. Um, I tell my students, <laughs> your body matters. Matter matters. Matter matters. Uh, <laughs> um, it does. It does. And in the church's understanding, our bodies are a gift. They are an integral part of who we are as human beings. We are body and soul. We are a unity. We're both animal and spiritual beings, right? We have bodies, we have souls, and those together form an integrated whole. So our bodies are part of the gift of how God created us and designed us to be and to live in this world. Um, furthermore, our bodies are a window. One of the things that St. John Paul II says over and over to us in the Theology of the Body Catechesis, the body expresses the person. So the body communicates. It's an outward communication and sign of the beauty, the depth, the dignity of each human person. So, and here's where we start to get into a little bit of difference with the culture, because more and more our culture says, no, your body is a screen on which you write an identity, oh, wow. not a window into the depth of who you are. So the body is... But my body is not just how I project a self, an identity before the world. It's the window that God gave me into the person that I am. Now, let's put sexual difference into that picture. Sexual difference is an integral part of all of that. Being male and female is an integral part of my bodily reality. Um, I'm called to make a gift of myself in love to those around me as a man, as a male, right? So th therefore, in my specific case, as a husband and as a father. So all of that, the and so for women, the, the inverse would be true, right? Their, their body expresses the reality of who they are as persons, the depth of their femininity, and they're called to realize that through a gift of themselves as mother, um, whether that's spiritual motherhood in religious life or actual motherhood in married life or um, other kinds of fruitful femininity in consecrated life in the world, right? So we have these ways of realizing ourselves. Our vocation is to love and our bodies and our being male and female are an expression of that and an integral part of that. that that's kind of the theology of the body 101, I think. Goodness gracious. The, the analogy you just proposed about the body being a window versus the body being a screen, uh, that really just kind of blew my mind. Um, because well, it, if I could just try to tease this out in my own mind right now as I'm putting it together, like one communicates that there is something more fundamental, that there's something more profound to being human than just the bodily experience. That that while even as a, I'm a counselor and so I'm well, I, I, I read a lot about the neurological literature with regards to human emotions and uh, with whether it's pornography or depression or anxiety, how to combat these things and know that a lot of the stuff does play out neurologically. But even in that, I resist going to a strict materialist perspective where those hormones are the only things that determine our, our emotions, our affect, our being, our way of, of expressing and being in the world, that there is something more profound Precisely because of what you said that, that like being a human person means that I kind of sit in both this visible world of physical creation, but then I'm also intimately connected with this, you know, invisible world um, that, you know, I will get to see in death 
um, and when my soul leaves my body and then in, in the end in the resurrection of the body, which we'll, we'll talk about that later, but it kind of is existing in both, but that there's something more profound to me than just the neurons, just the hormones, just the blood, just the, 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 this, again, conglomeration of atoms that, that makes my body my body. Mm-hmm. While the other then is proposing that there is something, you're just saying that you, all, you, you're just a screen upon which that you can create whatever digital image that you want if we want to push that. You know, whatever you want to project onto that screen, you can project whatever it is that you want. Now, there is some truth to that. And I think JP2 recognizes that in terms of the subjectivity of the individual. And that there is something mm-hmm. true about our personal experiences, our inner subjectivity, the inner world, the inner universe of every person. How would JP2 make that connection then between the subjective and then bringing that back towards this objective uh, uh, reality that we're speaking about? Sure. First, great question. And be- but before I go there, I just want to give credit to the, the distinction I just made between the body as a window and the body as a screen or surface. I'm indebted to Dr. Angela Franks great. Um, for that distinction. Um, it's, it's an idea she's been developing. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, it's spot on. Uh, and it captures an important insight that St. John Paul II gives us. And you're absolutely right. There's, there's truth to the idea that, you know, my unique individuality, um, I, I can present that in different ways to the world. I, I, I am an individual personal subject. I have individual freedom. Um, and, you know, the, the, way we, the way we comport, present ourselves is a reflection of that uniqueness. But for John Paul II, the uniqueness of the person never overrides or overwrites the truth, the objective truth of the human person, that we are body and soul, right? That we are creatures of a loving father. So I can't, in the way I express the reality of who I am, in the way I express my own personal experience and identity, I can't deny those deeper, more fundamental truths. So in a sense, the body can be a, a screen or a surface as long as we don't deny that at the same time it's a window that gives a, a deeper insight into the depth of the person and the person's call to the communion of love with God and with other human beings. Um, St. John Paul II loved to quote a text from the Second Vatican Council um, from the Pastoral Constitution on the Church Um, Section 24, man, the only creature of the visible world whom God made for his own sake. So we are, we're a visible creature, but we have a spiritual dimension, as you just said, can only realize himself through the sincere gift of self. So we are physical beings called to the communion of love with God and with each other. And my body is an integral part of that vocation. And yes, I, I have a uniqueness, I have a, a unique self-awareness that doesn't get overridden by my, the reality of my human nature, the reality of my being a creature. Those, those two things, work for, for St. John Paul II, go hand in hand. They work together. The, the objective truth of the person and the subjective expression of that truth, when we learn to make a gift of ourselves in love, those are those two realities working together. The basic structure of how we're created 
and our personal self-realization and fulfillment. We're fulfilled in love. We're fulfilled in entrusting ourselves to others. Amen. Amen. Thank come, John. Crushing it, man. Getting me all goosebumpy over here. I love it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and so the, the, the beautiful thing about the teaching of John Paul II and his legacy, and I think this was kind of one of the initial reasons for, for the interview, was just we're 15 years after his death in 2005. We're 40 years now since the Theology of the Body was first, when he was in the midst of it. Uh, what, 79 to 84 was the, the, the years that the catechesis was offered. And, and so we're, we're, we're decades into these, these reflections on the body. Um, you know, that when I, I, I understand that JP2, he saw where things were heading in a prophetic way and recognized that, that you know, humana vitae was rejected uh, by the culture. Um, the church's teaching against contraception was rejected by the culture for certain reasons. And so he wanted to lay out kind of a, as Christopher West likes to say, you know, the, the, the why's behind the what. Like, here's the reasons why the church has this sexual ethic, but we have to get into this deeper philosophy of who we are as persons, which JP2 was a philosopher, and then adding reveal truth onto that philosophy. But again, just in my own heart, recognizing a, a certain compassion towards the other side, if, 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 if I can use that language, not in an antagonistic way, but, but really in just a kind of a, a placeholder. Um, is to, to recognize that I, I get where this reaction comes from. You know, JP2 and his theology of body, he talked about it with regards to the beauty of being a man and being a woman and, and love and, and mutual respect and giving of one ourselves and love is the only way that we can truly find ourselves. He and never, at no point in the, in the theology of the body does he say, a man has to be the one who works 80 hours a week to provide for the family or that women can't be doctors or women can't be lawyers. And, and I, I feel that so much of the, the reaction to these constructs that we're speaking about is that it's almost like this preemptive fear that's like, whoa, 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 if you're saying that we are these limitations, you're getting right back into these gender stereotypes and you're going to be saying then that, that, that women have to be barefoot and pregnant in the house and can't have freedoms and can't vote and, and can't have uh, direction and, and jobs and occupation for themselves. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like that's not at all what the church is teaching. But there's just this fear that that's where things are going to go because that's where things were, historically speaking. And so there is some truth to react against that um, because those confines were artificial. There, there, there is a place where gender does have social certain social constructs that, that do need to be uh, reassessed and that truth should allow for that reassessing. But we've almost gone, not almost, we have gone to the other extreme where we've said, in this in this misguided compassion, we've we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and and we're causing even more confusion by saying then that we are just these amorphous creatures that gender is transposed onto us, and that we have this self determination to to create whatever it is that 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 we are. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think uh, amen to to basically everything that you just said. Um, Pope Francis actually has a very, um, I think, a very helpful way to express this, which, again, I think is kind of his um, articulation of the theology of the body. Um, Pope Francis says in um, Amoris Laetitia um, that we can distinguish sex and gender. We can distinguish the biology from this kind of the sociocultural interpretation 
of what it means to be a man or a woman, but we can never separate them completely. It's when we set, and this is exactly what Pope Benedict warned about. It's the hard separation that these two things, right? Because ideally a healthy culture would think about being a man or a woman in a way that's rooted in and expressive of our physical reality, our our physicality, our, our sex, right? Sex and gender should be interconnected. But for conceptual purposes, we can think about them differently. And, um, and it's true, harsh gender stereotypes are not helpful. Mm-hmm. And they can, they can squelch um, the freedom of individual human beings. And they, what St. John Paul II would call the originality of men and women as persons. John Paul insisted that the genius of women um, is something that we not only need within the family, but we need within the workplace. We need within politics. We need within corporate culture um, in the world. So we need the gifts of men and, and we need the genius of men, conversely, to be fully exercised within the family. Right. So it's not women have their sphere in the home and men have their sphere in public life. Right. That we it's kind of these. Um, Victorian stereotypes that got reified in our culture. Because the interesting thing, of course, is if you go back a little further before the Industrial Revolution, Mm -hmm. men and women, you know, tended to work side by side on farms and in family businesses. There wasn't this whole um, sharp gender division of labor that we get in the with the Industrial Revolution in the 19th, 20th century. So that's kind of a modern thing that we've somehow projected onto. And so to be able to step back from that and say, hey, some of these, some of, uh, some of these stereotypes are not helpful for our flourishing as men and women, the flourishing of our families. So, yeah, we, we, there, there's, we don't have to completely identify gender and sex, but we can't completely separate them either. Wouldn't it have just been easier if God would have made us all the same? <laughs> well, ultimately, you'll have to talk to him about that, <laughs> right? That's above my pay grade. That's above Mark. your pay grade. <laughs> it really, yeah. But, but what we do know is God didn't choose to do that, right? Male and female, he created them, says Genesis 1.27. And why did he do that? Well, Genesis 2.18 says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Why? Because we are called to communion and our being sexually differentiated as male and female is a visible sacramental sign written in our bodies that we need one another. We are, we are not sufficient. The image of God is not complete in one sex without the other. Um, I mean, the, 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 it takes both male and female to make Adam in the, in the biblical Hebrew, right? It's, it, it, and it's only there that you have the full image of God uh, manifest. So, and why, so why did God do that? Well, Again, ultimately, we'll have to ask him. Um, but I think one reason that St. John Paul II points us to um, in his teaching is that ultimately God is a communion of persons. 
Father, Son, and Spirit, three divine persons who are irreducibly different from one another in their mutual relation. The Father begets and is not begotten. The Son is begotten by the Father in an eternal act of love. The Holy Spirit is breathed forth from both of them as their mutual self-gift to one another. So in male and female, who are two ways of being a person in one human nature, we have a little created reflection of that eternal communion of persons and of our own vocation, which is to, as sexually differentiated beings, come together within our families, within society, to build an authentic human culture, to build something that reflects um, the creator's plan for us. Can we get to can these get- truths? This is, I mean, this is great. So can, we're dipping our toes both in, in philosophy and, and in theology here. Is there a way that we can reason ourselves to these conclusions? Or does revealed truth have to play a role in coming to these conclusions about the sex differences and the importance that are that, that's there? I do think a lot of these um, truths we can get at. Um, through simply reflecting on the world around us, through reflecting on what we're given in the sciences, Mm -hmm. like biology and um, neurobiology. We were talking a little bit before we we began, right? We we can find secular scientists who will give eloquent testimony to the reality of sexual difference, the way it affects the whole of our bodies, but our brains as well, and our patterns of interaction with each other. So, There's a lot of this that I think really is accessible. So, I mean, I don't think Christians have a monopoly on the reality of sexual difference by any means. But the trouble is we (laughs) and scripture makes this very clear because of the fall, because of the impact of sin on our minds and our hearts. We don't always arrive at the truth that we could arrive at about God and about ourselves if we looked honestly at the data and reasoned rightly. Sometimes we suppress the truth. Sometimes we have different agenda. And this is true for all of us, by the way. This for isn't sure. just for folks out there in the culture who have a different um, point of view. This is true for us individually, right? It's it's called concupiscence and sin. We 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 know the truth, but we... You know, that truth isn't convenient for me right now, so I want to do something else. Um, We do this all the time. So ultimately, we need God. We need the light of faith to get the full picture and to make sure to safeguard us against going off the rails to pursue our own agenda, which we are want to do. Which we all want to do. And and it's funny, theologically, we use that term concupiscence and sin. Uh, the, the sciences would use the term bias, researcher bias in, a, in, in an agenda. Of course, that to say it's, it's not there uh, would, be, would be folly. And, and I think that's, that's part of the problem is that so much of scientific literature wants to be, um, uh, I just want to say apolitical, but, but without bias. But the reality is the stuff that ends up getting published, the, the, what peer review journals, what peer reviewers read, what, 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 Key words captured their attention. Those are the things that kind of push through some of some some articles versus others. Um, and so I'm grateful that there are researchers we spoke about earlier, uh, Luann Brizendine, who is a 
psychiatrist um, and uh, Deborah So, who's another recent author. Um, the book, her book is um, Lou Ember's and I's books are the, the male brain and the female brain. And uh, Deborah mm-hmm. So's book that just came out is uh, The End of Gender, um, mm-hmm. which which they write from this perspective of neurology and neurobiology and looking at the at the, the brain and the body and saying that, yeah, they're, they're, these are some irrefutable truths. And, and Lou and Brissendine's point is pr- quite simple. It's like if you're saying basically that every chromosome in our body is different, the last that, that last set, you know, between XX and XY, again, just for pause, you know, we'll reserve the intersex um, uh, population for, for, for now for the purpose of discussion, not to be sure. dismissive, but just for the sake of, of recognizing even transgendered individuals, we're talking about l- less than 1% of the population. I mean, 0.7% of the population. So, so when we speak generally, we can speak pretty, pretty firmly that 90, over 99% of the population has XX or XY with, with, within their system. The premise that Louis Brizanite says basically is like that, that has deep impact in how you perceive your brain structure, the way your brain is formed, um, and, and the way that you operate and, and live within the world. Um, now, I can attest to that just being married to a woman for uh, almost 18 years, that the way she just operates and moves within the same space and time that I'm operating within is just fundamentally different. And it's taken a long time for me to to be more patient with that and recognizing that, like, while I just want to be headstrong and go and get things done, she wants to be more reflective, that I don't view that as a conflict anymore. Like, I, I've learned to be able to pause and to think and to say, okay, like, what it, what what is her genius that she's bringing to this decision that we need to make? What What is my genius that I'm bringing into this? What, what is the conversation that we need to have mutually within this? So I, I, I am grateful that there are secular researchers who are speaking the truth about these sex differences. Now, to your point that you said is that because of bias or concupiscence or whatever it is that we want to put into it, that the temp- there is going to be a limitation within that. So while I certainly recommend these authors, I will also put the caveat that Lou Ambrosinite's book, which I think is phenomenal, The Female Brain, in terms of any conversation about chastity, it's not present at all. I mean, at all, anywhere within the book. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not there. Um, now, no, Deborah. So she started when she shifted from being an academic to a journalist early in her career. She wrote for for Playboy magazine, and uh, so it may, it may be odd for us to be promoting authors, you know, that used to write <laughs> Playboy. But you know, I don't think I ever would have said that. But there it is. All right, you know, like because of where she, her journey has gone. But then her limitation is listening to her recently promoting her book on certain podcasts. She does go off the rails when we start talking about pornography specifically. And, uh, and, and those things. So, so the encouragement to the listeners to say that, that yes, there's great research that's being done out there, but we always have to anchor that uh, within the, the fuller truth that the church communicates and expresses. Absolutely. Uh, that, that, that's very well said. And I think the same is true um, in regard to studies of human sexual behavior with whether it's through evolutionary psychology or other other kinds of studies, where you get um, accurate an accurate description through the lens of different social scientific disciplines of the way people tend to operate, the way men and women tend to operate in the sexual sphere and in their interactions with each other. But as Christians, we have to add the caveat: these are fallen men and women mm. operating in a fallen. So while we can make you know, statistical generalizations about human sexual behavior and learn something important, right? Then we have to say, well, 
these statistical generalizations don't necessarily give us the complete picture of how God intended for us to operate and to communicate. And that's where the teaching of the church come, comes in, right? So we, it's, it's good to look at human experience, both our own personal experience and the experience that the sciences help us get at through study. But then we also have to look at those in the light of revelation, um, and that's where something like the theology of the body can be such a such a helpful resource because it enables us to think a little bit more deeply about sexual difference and sexual behavior beyond just what we can get at through our own personal day-to-day experience or what the sciences give us. It gives us the, the full picture of the human person. All right, if you've gotten this far into the podcast, you must be wondering, man, how can I get more good stuff from those guys at Faith and Marriage? Well, good thing you asked because we have an amazing website for you to check out, faithandmarriage.org, where we have numerous resources to help you on your journey of faith. At faithandmarriage.org, you can sign up for one of our upcoming marriage retreats. You can access our self-study online marital resource called United in Love, United in Christ. Or you can check out and listen to past episodes of the Always Hope podcast. At Faith in Marriage, we want to help you in all aspects of your relationships. Whether you are married, dating, or single, we have something for you. So check us out at faithinmarriage.org. Yeah, amen. Because science, by definition, by science's definition of the scientific method, its role is not to moralize or philosophize the larger questions, broader questions. To to interject larger questions aren't aren't necessarily the, the role of of science. It's science's strict observation of of strict experimentation of being able to understand what the variables are that are controlling this particular outcome, um, and so. It, 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 it does speak to the human nature to want to find truths, even in these observations and the, the, the human pursuit for, for broader truth, to want to then make these conjectures about human reality. But we can't exalt science. And I have a doctorate in counseling, so I firmly believe in, in the scientific method. Let me say that. But we can't exalt science to the level of creed. We can't exalt sure. it to, to the level of faith um, because... That isn't a, a place where science was ever even meant to be. So when we do that, by, though, by, we, its own, by its own definition, correct? By, yeah, yeah, by its own self-description, as you said, yeah. absolutely. So while again, recommend these authors and these and uh, the works that are there. It's great to to see that, and even the stuff that I look at with regards to sex addiction or even um, therapy, marital therapy, sex therapy, those things. Again, there's a place for it, but. Again, it all has to be uh, undergirded or, or, or subjected to, to a more profound truth about the person. So we've been talking a lot, certainly in terms of the cultural context right now, you know, and, and the divide that exists between the two. Let, let, let's kind of move towards the eschaton, if we will, because I know JP2 does speak about that with the theology of the body. What, what is the role of the resurrection of the body? Like, why, why is that an important teaching in Catholic theology? Why isn't that we just... Why is it that we resurrect with a body altogether? Why is it that we resurrect still in a, in a sexual, um, gendered body? Um, why why is that why is that significant? So, I, great question. And you know, again, 
um, we're, we're even even what we have in the light of revelation, we're 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 getting to the edge of where we can, you know. Uh, I know complete, we're speculating. Oh, even, I know. Even Saint Paul in First Corinthians fifteen, you know, when he's talking about the nature of the resurrected body, mm-hmm. says, "Well, you know, it's it's like the difference between the seed you put into the ground and the plant that comes out." Right. Okay. <laughs> that that's that's a really striking image, but it doesn't fully describe the reality of the resurrected body, right? So, um, but so, to go back to some of what we talked about, uh, the church teaches, the catechism is clear, you know, uh, the, the, the church has been clear throughout her history. To be human is to be a composite of body and soul. And Christ comes to redeem the whole person, right? So he doesn't just save our souls. He redeems us body and soul. Um, so the, the, uh, the body in the redemption of the body, as St. John Paul II talks about, yes, it's something that will be fully accomplished in the final resurrection of the body at the end of time. But the resurrection of the body is something that in the life of grace, in the communion of the church, through the receiving of the sacraments, we begin to experience here and now the body again recovers the ability to express the person, to express our the reality of love, to grow in virtues like chastity that make it possible for us to give ourselves in love to others, right? So the healing of our body and soul is something that begins here and now and then is perfected in the final resurrection at the end of time, right? So Christ, Christ yes, he saves, he saves our souls, but he saves the whole of who we are. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, the church's understanding, and it's been developed much more fully and beautifully in the teaching of John Paul II, is that sexual difference is an integral part of who we are as persons, body and soul, right? So it makes sense that our bodies in the resurrected state will be male and female, right? Because if God created us male and female and that difference together is what forms the image of God, then heaven is the perfection of the way God created us, not the eradication. So if our bodies are and our our being male and female are a visible sign of our call to communion with God and with one another, that's going to be perfected in heaven, not eradicated, not erased, right? Heaven is the perfection, it's the healing of all relationships and of our relationality as human beings in a way that's very different than the way we live on earth, right? Because it's not going to, our sexually differentiated bodies are not going to be primarily ordered to the, the procreation of children, but the communion of love with not just our families, but the whole of God's family, right? So again, mind blowing. Redemption is about our ultimate healing and perfection in the totality of our who we are as human. Amen. I think that's where we can, based on what we know from Revelation and the teaching of the church, we can say that. Yeah. You know, I, when it, I speculate about heaven, uh, I often wonder, you know, people who annoy me here on earth, <laughs> just to say, like good people, good people who, who, who are living out of the fullness of their personality, but just their, just their personalities just don't rub against my personality well. 
and it's nothing other than that, I'm like, man, I, I don't even know what that's going to look like in heaven when the fullness of your personality just doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> like, just, just to... <laughs> it's, I'll, I'll throw out a, a thought experiment image. It to me. It's going to be the pearl and the oyster, mm. right? Because it's that little grain of sand in the oyster that creates the irritation that causes the oyster to secrete the what becomes the pearl around it. And in, I, I really do think, and here we have some solid ground from, from Revelation, right? It, when we see in the Gospels, Jesus' resurrected body still has the wounds of his passion, yeah. right? The, the suffering he underwent for love of us. And St. Thomas Aquinas says that in heaven, the martyrs will still have their wounds, but in a glorified state, right? So they won't be marks of, they won't look like wounds. They'll be marks of glory um, in their, in their resurrected body. So all the little sufferings that we endure and endure well out of love and that those things that purify us, those are going to be glorious in heaven. Hmm. So you, you should embrace those people who annoy you <laughs> hard as it is, but when they're really getting under your skin, just give them a hug and say, thank you. Thank you for what you're preparing me for. Uh, I said like a good Catholic. That was, that was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a more theological way of saying, offer it up. Offer right? it up. Yeah, just, just give it to the Lord. Um, we were speaking about just even theologically, conceptually, uh, about uh, redemption and redemption of the body. You know, going back to the questions that we've been kind of kicking around here for our, our interview. When we speak about the sexual difference, and you said this so beautifully, inherently within it is a limitation, is a recognition that there is a need for the other person. That need ultimately communicates our need for redemption, uh, our need for salvation, our, our lack of self-sufficiency, which it seems in my estimation, and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong in this, or you kick back on this a little bit, that when we get into this gender fluidity language, the need for the other person isn't present anymore. The, 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 like outside of a romantic love or even more basely, uh, just for the sake of orgasm, if, if I can even go more at a more base level, that there's, there's an attraction for another person that allows me to have a certain experience. But even if I want to have that experience on my own, it's capable and it's permissible. And it doesn't really matter whether I have that experience with another person or not. But I could if that's one of my preferences. So like at the end, though, we, we fall into this trap of, of believing that we are self-sufficient. And I think that that language, in my estimation, can only really have come to be in a, in, with all the advances that we have of, of technology, of science, uh, which we're grateful for, the economy. All these things are wonderful, great advances that, that, that have pro prolonged life and allowed us to even do conversations like this. But again, one of the errors of that is to then believe that we don't fundamentally need one another, that the, the need for communion um, isn't present anymore. It may just at best be some archaic evolutionary uh, traits that we've inherited, um, but that we can save ourselves uh, to, 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 to great degree. So the question of a redemption of the body, that question doesn't even exist within the modern man because there isn't even anything to redeem. 
uh, because there's nothing inherently wrong, um, because we are capable of, of operating within our own existence at the expense of, of, of anybody else and, and God himself. Is that, a, is that an accurate read of the situation, or what, what, what do you think? Sure. I think I'd quali- go back to the first part of what you said and qualify a little bit, um, I w- because I would want to say that as created from the opening chapters of Je- Genesis 1 and 2 prior to the fall, we're created for communion with one another. We're created for communion with God. So that reality, that, that insufficiency, that's a created reality. That's right. And then it gets exacerbated and twisted by the fall. Yes. Right. And yes. The, what, what it twists is precisely it interjects this idea because of our pride and our hubris that we don't need God, that we are, as you say, self-sufficient, that we can find our own. I'm back to Benedict the 16th. We, we are our own creator. Right. We we create ourselves, our identity, our happiness um, and others to the degree that they're necessary. They're they're objects which can give me pleasure. They're not persons to whom I'm called to give myself in love, which is how I actually realize myself as a person. So it, it is uh, uh, the, 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 the need for communion is part, of, I think, part of hu- our human nature and part of our created reality. And then that need for communion gets twisted, wrapped around the axle by, by sin um, and misdirected, especially when we start to think of ourselves as little monads who, who are little self-creators. You um, say- and gender, gender fluidity kind of pushes in that direction. Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, sorry to cut you off, but you know, you speak about pride and, and, uh, and arrogance in that, but I also see a deep cynicism in that as well. You know, that there's a, there's a, a reaction to a hurt. And this is me being a therapist right now, putting that, that hat on where not the individual per se, but the culture as a whole, that if we're reacted to these gender stereotypes and recognize that there's a profound hurt that's there, well then just like any of us who are hurt in certain experiences, what's the first thing we do? We fall into self-preservation mode. We, we want to protect ourselves. We want to um, uh, attend to, to the wound and we want to put ourselves in a situation where we're not going to be hurt again. Now that could, that's one degree of that is self-protection, which is good. But then when you get into the line of, well, you know, even the desire for communion is bad or nothing is good is going to happen. All there is, is hurt. All there is, is entropy. All there is, is this, this, this fundamental disconnect, this insurmountable uh, gap that I'm never going to be able to overcome. Well, then why even bother? You know, like why, why even get started on the journey of faith? Why even ask the deeper questions? And, and, and I find that to be a, a, a more cynical approach. Um, that is quite despairing in, in my estimation. Uh, I, I think I agree. And I think the, the wounds, which can be, which are both personal and cultural, they're the wounds of the sexual revolution, right? These are, these are wounds within our culture and it's the wounds of closing ourselves off to the reality of God as the author of life and children as a gift uh, given to us by a loving God, a loving Father. Um, 
I tell my students that the Obergefell decision that the Supreme Court made a few years ago um, wasn't so much the Supreme Court, quote, redefining marriage. It was catching up to where the culture went 60 years ago when we rejected fertility from marriage through contraception and rejected permanence through no-fault divorce. So on those terms, um, the way in which the culture understands marriage, there's no reason why people of the same sex can't marry, whatever that is, because that's just a public declaration of love for a period of time between a couple of adults. That's all it is, right? But that that rejection of marriage and that, that has at its heart the rejection of the gift of life um, f- as a gift from God creates wounds in individuals. It creates wounds in us as a culture. Mary Everstadt has a really interesting recent book called Primal Screams, Mm -hmm. where she argues that our current identity politics are really the reflection of cultural wounds of the sexual revolution because because people come from literally from broken families, families that are broken in so many ways because of the collateral damage and fallout of the sexual revolution. They don't have a place where they belong, where they are loved and accepted unconditionally. So they find a group, a tribe that they can identify with. And therefore, they're all in for this tribe. And therefore, anyone who criticizes their group or their tribe, it creates this incredible shrill reaction. But it's it's as you say, she's not coming that at it from a therapeutic perspective, but from a social scientific one. But it's 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 cultural wounds manifesting themselves in our current politics. So the role of the church has always been to be the agents of grace and the agents of healing where those wounds are. That we see this obviously in Christ Himself going to the outskirts, um, ministering to people, performing miracles, helping those who are on the fringes of society. And we have so many new great saints over the history of the church who have done just that. Uh, uh, Damien of Molokai, Mother Teresa, uh, even here in New Orleans, um, you know, Blessed Francis Xavier Silos. So there's mm. a whole host of individuals who do this. So if we're trying to attend to the wounds of the culture here, the, the pains, the hurts that are there, how do we do this? I mean, like what, what we can get into conversations like this, which is great. But I'm sure all of us at a, at a more practical level have a family member who has come out as gay or uh, couples who are getting divorced um, or somebody who is struggling with pornography or somebody who may be coming out as, as a transgendered individual. What is the pastoral, the appropriate pastoral response that ministers and meets to these individuals where they are while at the same time trying to uphold the truth? but not in a way that makes it insurmountable to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question and a really important one. Um, I, I think um, I'm going to take a couple of ideas from Pope Francis here because I think he's really, his teaching is really helpful. Um, What we don't want to do is to weaponize the teaching of the church and moralize at people. Right. And say you shouldn't or you should. Right. We the, the church, Pope Francis tells us and our families are meant to be field hospitals. Right. Where we encounter Christ, the great physician who tends our wounds. But 
then through us can invite others to that same healing that we've begun to experience. So I think that's the starting point, right? Before we get into any kind of conversation about uh, pastoral direction, encountering Christ, ourselves first every day, right? But then inviting others as we have the opportunity to that same encounter. And then when the person begins to encounter Christ, we can walk with them. We can accompany them. We can share something of our own experience of healing um, and the healing that has come to us through the understanding that the church has given to us. But we do that walking side by side as both recovering sinners in the field hospital of the church, right? Not from a moral high ground. This is what St. John Paul II called the law of gradualness, right? The law We encounter Christ. And then our Christian life is basically a process of ongoing conversion as Christ progressively deals with the wounds that sin has created, does create in us and sets us free so that we can more and we all fail. We all fall short. We all fall short of the truth that we're, we are called to live and proclaim. Right. That's why we have the mercy of God. So we need that mercy every day. And we need to remind others of that mercy. But what we don't do is adopt what John Paul called the gradualness of the law. The idea that, well, for some people, for same-sex attracted people, you know, the church's teaching on chastity is too hard. So we just, we have to lower the bar. For married couples who can't hack the teaching on contraception, it's they find it too burdensome. We have to just kind of dumb things down and say, well, it's okay that you contra... No, we invite people to that fullness of the truth, but we also tell them that when you fail, when you fall short, as we all do, Christ is there with his mercy to strengthen you, to help you uh, get up and continue on that path of conversion. That's the law of gradualness. So we always, and Pope Francis says this beautifully, we always call people to the fullness of what Jesus offers us, but we, we don't do it in a way that weaponizes the church's teaching. We do it in a way that offers mercy and hope. Accompaniment, togetherness, yes. journeying with consolation, compassion. These words that we use, it's, it's, it speaks about being with other people to the degree that they're willing to, 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 to be with us to invite that type of relationship. Um, Absolutely. Because if it isn't for us, and, and this is where I, I do agree, you know, uh, in, with many places to put Francis, but just to say in terms of like getting, getting out and, and uh, many of his things about obviously smelling like the sheep. I mean, all these things have become kind of little cliches that we, or memes that we kind of cutesy, we throw out. But, but the truth of the matter is that if we are, and this is a challenge even to myself, if I've, I'm only interacting and conversing with people who think like me or look like me or act like me, well, then I'm only operating within my self-contained silo and, and I'm not allowing my, my experience to be broadened. Um, and that's, that's not to ad adopt a moral relativistic uh, mindset, but, but liberalism in its true sense of the word opens ourselves up to various viewpoints to engage with those viewpoints, not to, um, not to condemn or outright say everything's bad, but, but to be open in the sense that like we have the truth, therefore we have an obligation to go interact with, with others uh, so that we can proclaim these truths in ways that, 
that the world can hear, and not just in the broad sense of the world, but in our particular communities as as lay people and, and at the the, the water fountains, uh, at, at the offices, at the conversations, at the way that we attend to people who are sick and dying in, in, in our communities or or in our families, just always trying to to maintain that level of, of relationship while still upholding the truths that are there. Um, Absolutely. John, is, is there, you know, is there any place just even theologically that maybe GP2's teaching is is overly romantic or idealistic? Is there... Is there, are there any places where, I mean, I know theology the, the, is the science of science, right? I mean, it always is, is, is subjected to, to certain scrutinies and maybe we're still too close to, to, to the legacy of the Holy Father. Um, but are there any, I hate to say it, I mean, I mean, not, not, I love JP too, and I'm saying this as a man who loves him, but no man is perfect, you know, is, are there any critiques or, or, or uh, idealisms or anything that they may be a little bit too far off Um in his teaching or not. I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. So I, I think there are ways where we're still trying to work through um, his teaching and receive it. Um, I mean, there are questions about individual things he said in the theology of the body that I'm pushing my students on and my students are pushing me on and we're trying to dig deeper and, and understand. I think the, 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 Objection that he's—it's uh, an overly romanticized view. It's—it's—it's it's, it's an objection that's out there, and a lot of theologians um, offer that objection to the theology of the body. One place where it comes up very frequently is in the Holy Father's language of conjugal union as total self-giving, right? Um, because the objection says, "Well, you know, there's." We can't totally give ourselves in any act. That's physically and metaphysically impossible. So it's just this kind of overly romanticized view of love and of of sexual union that I think actually, though, that's a place where the, the criticism is a little bit off. And I think the criticism might be more on target when you get to some popular and kind of enthusiastic presentations of the theology of the body, which sometimes go down that, push that a little bit, I think, in an unhelpful direction. John Paul's point there is actually, we're, we're back to the objective-subjective distinction that we talked about. Objectively, sexual intercourse is a gift of the whole person one to another, giving oneself in a union in one flesh that's capable of receiving the further gift of a new human life from the creator. So that's the objective meaning of the conjugal act of sexual intercourse. That's why we can't separate that that union from that openness to the gift of life. Spousal self-gift and potential mother and fatherhood always have to be together. And even scripture bears witness to that. Um, St. John Paul II reminded us what, what John Paul is precisely not claiming is that every time a couple engages in sexual intercourse, they experience heaven on earth. That it's kind of, this is the, this is the realized version of what we'll experience forever in heaven. No, it's not. Um, first of all, Heaven is not going to be one extended 
experience of sexual, it's going to be the perfection of what our sexual capabilities point us toward, mm -hmm. right? Second, um, it, John Paul, if you read Love and Responsibility, um, which he wrote as uh, as an as a bishop, it's very clear that John Paul II, as a pastor, was aware that couples experience their individual experience in sexual union varies greatly. You know, sometimes couples are tired, sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're frustrated, and they're trying to reconcile with each other's. But how, whatever their experience is, the objective meaning of what they do when they have sexual intercourse is they're making a gift of themselves through their bodies. To, so their subjective experience and the objective reality don't necessarily completely line up. And when you try to say, no, they line up every time, you're romanticizing the theology of the body and you're saying something John Paul II never, in fact, said. So I think some of the pushback against the, the teaching is based on mis misunderstandings like that, misreadings, that he... You know, he has this overly exalted view of love and of sex that just doesn't connect with real people's experience. Well, actually, that's not, that wasn't his claim. Um, that 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 wasn't his claim as a philosopher. That certainly wasn't his claim in his teaching as pope. So sometimes it's we got to dig a little deeper and say, well, what did he actually say, and what did he actually mean here? Yeah, that's well said because I think that romanticism is is there and there's a tendency to and not just even i think if i could be honest in with enthusiastic presenters not just even with regards to the theology of the body but but sometimes across the board that sometimes we we may overly romanticize some of the spiritual teachings of the church um that we may are are advertising more than what the writers themselves have actually are trying to communicate because the reality of sin is that it's it's real. I mean, like concupiscence is real. Like so, so even when we study something like the theology of the body or JP 2s extended teaching teachings on family life, on sex and gender, we see this beautiful vision, but we don't we don't enter into the fullness of that vision just because we read the catechesis or just because we had one amazing weekend, um, like. Maybe for some people, the, the miraculous happens to that degree for sure. But, but for the vast majority of us, it's a slow burn that it takes mm -hmm. a long time for us to contend with our fallen, not just sexual nature, but sinful nature where however sin manifests and that it just takes a long time of prayer, of asceticism, um, not in the, in, in, in the beating ourselves, but in the exercise and in, in the recognition that there's virtue that needs to be inculcated within ourselves, inculcated within ourselves, that it takes time for said sins, said wounds to be healed for redemption to fully materialize itself within my life. But that's the journey of faith. That is, that is the journey of faith. So we have to be cautious against some overly romanticized notions because honestly, I think those romanticized notions offer a false hope that can be even more dangerous than the cynicism of the world because inevitably they, they, they fall apart. And so right. we, we have to be realistic um, in, in the ways that, that the message is, is, is interpreted uh, and in the ways that the message is, is communicated as well so that we're speaking as clearly as possible because the, the real sins are there, the real wounds are there, the real pains are there. 
And the church has real answers to those pains. Um, but sometimes it just takes time to get the real healing that, that is required. You've just given a great description of what John Paul calls the law of gradualness, mm-hmm. right? which in, in other words, we could say is the, the Christian life, right? For most of us, it takes a lifetime to undergo that healing and conversion. Um, but that's what we're called to. Um, and it's not, it's not a, you know, there, may, there can be moments of grace where the Lord breaks through and heals us or touches us in a particular way and, and thank God for those. But real conversion is doing the daily work of conforming my life to Christ and coming back to him for his mercy when I fail and when I fall short. So, yeah. That's, that's the beauty of the church's teaching about purgatory in my estimation as well, is that uh, even when the journey ends here on earth, the, the journey of, of healing, the journey of growth, the journey of perfection, um, God still gives us an opportunity to continue that um, in, right. in this other state. So um, we all got work to do. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, all, um, we're all trying to get there, you know. Absolutely true. <laughs> and, uh, and like I say to, to, uh, to my, in my presentations, you know, just because I'm a marriage therapist doesn't automatically make me a better husband, you know, like in many cases it's worse because I know better. I know the science, I know the behaviors, you know, like I can say the same thing as a moral theologian. You know, I tell my students, those who can't do teach, right. I can write books about virtue. That doesn't mean I'm a virtuous person. I'm struggling the way all my students are. Amen. So yeah, absolutely. Amen. Amen. Well, John, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and, uh, and we can go on and on, but, but I, I don't want to bore the listeners too much more. So it, opportunity here to, to, to plug any of your works or books. If, if people have been enjoying what they've been hearing, how, how can they get more? Um, oh, sure. Well, thank you. Um, so they can go. My wife and I have a website that talks a little bit about our ministry. Um, it's marriage forlife.net. So marriage, the number four, life as one word, dot net. Um, And just a few of the recent books um, that kind of touch on some of the topics that we've touched on here. Um, You, in a different show, interviewed uh, Dr. Sarah Bartell, who was my co-author for uh, the Catechism on Family Life that we did with CUA Press a few years ago, which is a, a way to get at kind of concrete answers from church teaching to different specific questions that often come up around marriage and sex. Um, you, you mentioned um, my wife and I a couple of years ago did a program of marriage formation called One Body, a program of marriage preparation and enrichment for the new evangelization. So it can be used either to prepare couples for marriage or after couples are married married for ongoing formation that's was with Emmaus road. Um, and then we also did a book, um, just last year came out with tan books, raising Catholic kids for their vocations, just sharing a little bit of our experience of being Catholic parents and how do you try to be a domestic church? Um, you know, in the midst of all your failures and struggles as parents, um, actually one of the chapters, we have five adult kids who, thanks be to God, all of them uh, love the Lord and love the church. Um, but they wrote one of the chapters wow. just about what things in our family's life help the faith take root in them. So 
we're like, we don't know what we did. So you guys, you guys write this. So, um, so those are, those are some of the, the, the recent books you'll find on the website. Um, and my, my wife also has an Instagram where she kind of blogs about, um, marriage and, uh, our life together. Um, merit again, marriage dot four dot life, um, on Instagram. Fantastic. Well, we'll have links to many of those on the show notes for people to be able to access and uh, the, the, the great work that you and Claire are doing. And uh, I, I love the idea of the last book. Maybe that's a, that could be a, the topic of another conversation, a future podcast about raising kids in the faith. Because I know my kids are still young. Well, I mean, 16 to six, I have four. But uh, some days it's just like, all right, you know, we're, we're doing we best we can. Uh, but you sort of feel like it's the crapshoot sometimes, you know, like hope you're getting combat pay for those teenagers. <laughs> so far, actually, so far we've been good. Our 16-year-old has been phenomenal. And, uh, right. and, and again, that's, that's a whole other conversation uh, that sure. I think is, is, worth, is worth having. Um, but we, we love our 16-year-old. He's, he's been really good to us. Um, and uh, just got to honor their freedoms a little bit more, honestly. It's just really what the teenagers are about. Honoring their freedoms, but those freedoms aren't just you uh, being able to watch TV more, those freedoms also mean more responsibility. So, so there's an exchange and guess what? This is what adulthood is, you know? So With great power comes great responsibility. You got it, Ben Parker. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I heard that somewhere. <laughs> and I'm a Spider-Man fan. So there it is, you know, so we quote that very, you know, we quote that often. So, well, John, final question. I ask all my first time guests, what gives you hope? Huh. Um, I think Pope Benedict said it best um, in his encyclical on hope. Um, one of those beautiful documents uh, the church has given us re recently. To know God is to know hope. So God is the great hope in our day-to-day -day lives. So as we've been talking about, life can be a slog. It can be a struggle. We're struggling against, in some ways, our culture and its unraveling. We're struggling against our own failures and sinfulness and limitations. But when we know God, when we're in touch with him, we have hope. We have hope for ourselves. We have hope for the culture because ultimately this is God's world. Um, you know, we don't always see, we don't always know what his plan is, but we know that this is his world and God is in charge. So knowing that reality gives us hope in the face of no matter how much I fail or how crazy things get in the world around us. Amen. Well, beautiful way to end the episode. Thank you, John Grabowski, for joining me on the show. God bless you, man. Have a great day. Thank you for having me, Mario. God bless you too. All right, everybody. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. And I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Links to the various websites and books mentioned in the podcast are found in the show notes. Let me end by reiterating a point that was made in the show. We are stewards of this truth. It is a privilege that we live in a time in history where we understand what we were created for. We are truly indebted to John Paul II and his teachings. And that also means that we have a job to do. We need to go out to the margins and find ways of speaking this truth. We have to resist an us versus them mentality. There are many, many people who have their ears open and their hearts open and they want to dialogue. They want to hear what is being communicated by the church. 
But we can't just presume martyrdom going into these conversations. Rather, we have to presume charity, love of our neighbor, as Jesus has instructed us to do. We do live in a contentious age. This is an undeniable fact. But we as Christians are called to be the peacemakers because we have the truth on our side and because Jesus has called us to do that. So brothers and sisters, let's get to work. Let's roll up our sleeves and do the job of evangelizing the culture and do the work that every Christian in every era and every age has had to do. Be good and God bless everybody.